Everybody, we are here. It's April 6th, and it's the Vegetable Beat webcast and podcast. It's a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for growers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. And the theme song may have clued you in this week's about plant activators. Um, I'm your host, Ben Phillips. Our Zoom engineer is Mike Reinke. And today we have two guests, Steve Bogash from Marone Bio Innovations and Dan Eagle, plant pathologist from Purdue. Both these guys have experience with these mysterious materials, these plant activators, and we hope that we can learn some more about them together. So, Steve, Dan, welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Good to be here. Dan, I'd like to uh, start by asking you very broadly, what is a plant activator fungicide? Well, Ben, let's let's start off and and talk about what plants can do about diseases. We all know that that some varieties, for example, have some resistance to them. So they have host resistance bred into them. So, but what we're talking about today is different. So let, let's imagine that you have a field of, let's say, tomatoes and, and disease starts. What, what, if they're not resistant, those plants are not resistant, what can they do? And it might seem like they're completely defenseless. But in fact, when, when pathogens start, when the bacteria or fungal pathogens start on those plants, um, there are biochemical reactions that start within that plant that help the plant defend itself, not in an immune way like, like with antibodies like humans, but there are biochemical pathways that start. They, those pathways might uh, fight directly against that fungal pathogen, for example, or um, they might strengthen cell walls and, and fight it that way. And really for a, a number of years, researchers have been uh, looking at, at these systems, and I, and uh, but it's really only more recently that that we we some of these products have been uh, commercialized, and and uh, and I think that's what we want uh, to talk about today. So a plant defense activator then is one that induces resistance in plants. Okay, so w- what you're doing then is you're telling the plant uh, that it's under uh, attack. You're you're as you put it, Ben. You're you're, you're crying wolf. Um, so these, the exposure, these biochemicals and microorganisms might induce resistance. Um, one way I thought it might be, um, interesting to, to think about was if you take a conventional fungicide that you, you, you take a pathogen, a fungal pathogen, and you take the fungicide and mix them in a test tube, that fungal pathogen should kill or inhibit that, that fungus. But if you take a, one of these plant activator products, 
and the pathogen and mix them test tube, it will do nothing because what the plant activator, defense activator product is doing is, is stimulating a response in the plant and that will affect the pathogen. Um, for that reason, I, 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 for that reason, we talk about resistance in fungicides, for example, um, and, and, and that's a different topic we won't go in and into today. But for the most part, um, we don't see those kinds of resistance issues with plant activator products. Hmm. Also, um, on these plant defense activator products, they aren't systemic like some of the fungicides are. They don't move within the plant. But I think in, in a simplistic fashion, we can think about the cells and the plant talking to each other. And oftentimes when the plant ac activator is uh, uh, applied to one part of the plant, uh, many parts or perhaps all of the plant is protected because that the reaction, although it's not systemic in the way we think of with fungicides, it, it goes throughout the plant. Whoa. Okay. Wow. I didn't, it's sometimes they're marketed as systemic, um, but I see how that's just the easiest way to explain it. <laughs> I didn't know it worked that way. I, yeah. So I think there's a lot, and we can go into this later, but there's a lot we don't know. Mm -hmm. and, and Steve, of course, will chime in. But but um, my my read from the literature is really, it's kind of the plant talking to itself more than the, hmm. the chemical moving. That is really interesting. So I, <clears throat> you kind of um, framed it in a way that I, I don't, so this is a fungicide. These are fungicides, but or, they, or back. Oh, or bactericides, right? They're in this broad category of disease-fighting things you can spray, which I might just call fungicides in general. And they have these ways of working that are almost a little bit like, in my mind, um, something like a plant growth regulator and how those work, where they, they enter the plant, they cause things to happen inside the plant. Um, they kind of like show, they kind of like push and suggest that a plant's own biochemistry start working a certain way. Um, and some herbicides do that too. So it's, and with those products, you can see very clearly that something has happened, especially if it's a herbicide, the plants are doing real weird stuff and plant growth regulators can do different things like stall the plant or make it flower before it needs to things that you can really key in on with these. Ideally, if they're working, your plant just continues to look normal and right. <laughs> doesn't get a right. disease. So it's a little trickier to wrap your head around like what its function is and if it's functioning. But um, Dan, I'd like to move to another question and direct this one at Steve, because Steve is here from Marone Bioinnovations from a former career at Penn State. And <clears throat> at Penn State, you worked with a product called Regalia, uh, which is one of these. And Marone Bioinnovations is the company that produces it. And you now work for them. Can you tell us a little bit more about Regalia? What's it made of? How does it work? Sure, and and a couple of things. One is um you, you keep you you have referred to as systemic, and while the activity is systemic, we don't like to talk about these materials as being systemic. Um, officially, a systemic material like uh, one of the OO mycete materials, typically it gets inside the plant, and that chemical is actually now giving control, but inside the plant because the um, regalia, for instance reacts, causes the plant's biochemical pathways to fire up. It's not regalia giving control. It's, it, regalia has done its thing, but there is this whole cascade reaction that happens 
once you turn this on and all of those compounds are doing the work. It's not actually regalia that's fungitoxic or bacteriotoxic. So in, in answering your question, regalia is a giant knotweed extract. It's Renaltria sacculinensis. Um, the formula sold here in the States is a 5% formula. Um, it's applied both foliarly and as a drench. And um, interestingly enough, um, one of the things that we have discovered in not that long is that um, when you apply it foliarly, it largely acts on the, uh, the phyloplane. It's acting on the part above the ground. Um, and so if we're dealing with root-borne or, or uh, crown diseases, then I want them to apply it as a drench. It's not, it's not limited. It's not like there's a barrier there. So you apply it foliarly and it only stays in the phyloplane and you apply it as a drench and it only stays in the rhizosphere. Uh, but there is definitely, um, it's the, the effect is more concentrated depending on where you actually apply it. So if I'm battling powdery mildew, for instance, or I'm working in crops that we know would possibly get powdery mildew, you're a lot better off to apply it foliarly in order to in order to battle powdery mildew. Um, and okay. so the and, and there's a, there's a lot of other things that we've characterized about regalia. You had um, talked about you can't really see it happening. It's interesting because regalia also promotes um, the production of chlorophyll B. And you can see it in a field. If you were to stripe a field with regalia, um, the plants are going to be greener, um, distinctly greener where you apply regalia. Now, okay. if the plants are operating at their optimum, everything is as good as it can possibly be. You may not see much of a difference, but I used to, when I was growing a lot of uh, indoor uh, cucumbers and um, I could always tell when uh, one of my crew had not applied it to a row, because it would be distinctly yellower or lighter green than hmm. where the regalia had been. So it's a noticeable difference in, um, in the actual way the crop looks. Well, that can be, I think that is probably useful to know that your coverage is good and things like that. That's, I like that effect. That's neat. But it, it, it's interesting because that there are a, there's a huge difference in the way that these all these different materials work, and there are a number of plant activators out on the market. Um, I liken um, regalia to um, I look at it. It's like a piano where you've pushed down all the keys at once, or an awful lot of the keys. Um, some of the materials, like the uh, the seaweed products. They, they do some of that, but they only push down some of the keys and you typically won't see that chlorophyll B reaction from the, from the seed, from the, the kelp materials. So there's a, the, the number of differences gets to be really broad as you look at all these plant activators. And you were alluding that to, to that in some of the intro materials when you were inviting me on is that there's a, there's a lot of these materials out on the market right now. They do a lot of different things. Um, and so not all of them are going to turn on the uh, induced systemic reaction, ISR, and systemic acquired reaction processes. Um, they're not all going to turn them on completely or at the highest level possible. Okay. So you, you just gave me some two terms there that I've also heard abbreviated. One was induced Systemic induced resistance, systemic resistance. ISR, and then ISR. there was the other one. What was the other one? Um, systemic acquired resistance. S-A-R, okay. And, and roughly you'll see them also called the jasmonic acid or salicylic acid pathways. Mm -hmm. and, and these are really complex biochemical uh, reactions. And the plants are already incredibly complex the way that, that they, their biochemistry runs. 
I've got a number of papers that I will gladly share with any of your listeners. I will send them these papers. They are a wonderful cure for any problems anybody's having sleeping. They will knock you right out. Um, But the modes of action that they do is really, really interesting. And there's a lot there. The chemistry is especially interesting. It reminds me of when we learned about photosynthesis is you put a molecule in the top and that energy reacts down the line. And at the end, you get photosynthesis. But there's a lot that happens in between. I see. Okay, that's a pretty good analogy. Um, when you had mentioned that jasmonic and salicylic acid pathways is another term that's used to describe how these are acting, it's a pretty well-known phenomenon within the bug world that insects can can elicit this response in plants too, just by their feeding. Little mm-hmm. rasping insects and stuff like that, even big chewing insects can get the plant to, to react. And in some cases, um, for lack of a better word, they can call in the troops by res- res- <clears throat> producing certain volatiles that call in parasitic wasps and stuff. Really interesting, interesting stuff. Yes. Um, now, Dan, we just talked a little bit about regalia. And in your research at Purdue, you've, inco- you've worked with, you've, I think you've worked with some regalia, but you've also worked a lot with Actigard, which is from a different company. It's a different product altogether. Can you talk a little bit about it and if how it differs and draw some comparisons? Sure. Um, so you're right. I have dealt with some of the, some other, uh, of these, uh, uh, products, but I probably have uh, more experience both from a research standpoint and also from a kind of an extension standpoint with, with ActiGuard. ActiGuard is a synthetic product. So while, um, uh, Steve talked about how, uh, Regalia is a botanical extract, uh, ActiGuard is, is basically synthesized by, by chemists and is made in a kind of a factory type setting. So that is one difference between ActiGuard and Regalia. And because ActiGuard is synthetic, it is not organically certified. Regalia, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is, is certified by OMRI, which is a Granic Material Review Institute. So that means it'll be recognized by, by a lot of organic certifiers. Um, but ActiGuard, and since Steve was, was talking about exactly what, uh, Regalia is, so ActiGuard, the active ingredients is acibenzolar S-methyl. So it's a, biochemi- a biochemical, um, and it's, it's supposed to mimic a, a, a biochemical that induces resistance. So hopefully application of ActiGuard will, will start the process that, that hopefully will result, result, result in reducing plant defenses. So both products are labeled on a number of crops and diseases, but I, I ask listeners to check the label for your specific crop and disease. Um, ActiGuard labels uh, several greenhouse uses, um, and and at least one of the labels I was able to find with Regalia mentions different greenhouse uses, but you have to be careful on that. Uh, Check before some states uh, will will enforce this, and and you have to be careful whether it's uh, labeled for greenhouse use or not. Um, Most crops list ActiGuard at a very low rate, less than one ounce per acre Um, Regalia, uh, list, I think, a, a high rate of like four quarts per acre. So, so the, there's differences in in, in in that as well. Okay. And, and Dan, I just I, um, we we see like the um, uh, Mid Atlantic Vegetable Guide. It loft it lists the regalia at that four quart per acre. We almost never use it at that rate. Typically, oh. more one to two quarts per acre. And there are two packages of regalia out there. There's just regalia. And there's Regalia, capital C, capital G, and that is labeled in just about every state for indoor use. 
And instead of it being uh, quarts per acre, that label is going to be ounces per gallon. Plus, I've got a conversion chart for folks who are moving, who are going from field and using backpacks. I can help them convert all of our products over to tablespoons or ounces per gallon to make that a whole lot easier. Okay. So the, so the greenhouse formulation of regalia is... Is it a different percentage of active ingredient or? It is literally the exact same. The, okay. it, this is this is a labeling and packaging. We we only put regalia um, in 2.5 gallon jugs and larger. Regalia CG um, starts at quarts, then goes to gallons, then two and a halves, then 55 gallon drums. It's 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 just it's designed for indoor use. It's and and for small small growers. Gotcha. And so well, I got to tell you, so I'm I'm a fan of Actigard, and when I first, when I was working with Extension, it was the go-to material for my tomato growers when they were dealing with bacterial speck, spot, or canker. Um, the the challenge with Actigard is it's got a 14-day PHI, and while it does a really nice job on these same biochemical pathways, that 14-day PHI, if you are dealing with a bacterial disease in your tomatoes or peppers. Um, that's a real killer because, you know, right as the plants are really getting stressed, they've got a heavy fruit load on, you've got to pack that material up for the year. And that was why I first started adopting regalia. And um, what I found was one of the most powerful sets of chemistry out there was the combination of regalia plus manco, zeb, and copper. That is all a, three? All three together. That is a tank mix that um, just about all the plants that we find of high value and commonly used um, will tolerate that tank mix. And it's about the most powerful set of protectants you can throw down together. Um, nice, nice fungitoxic, bacteriotoxic set of uh, properties to them. And um, it, it, it's, all, it's about as good as you get in managing those diseases, that particular tank mix. So I was going to ask about some other um suggestions you would have for deploying the use of regalia in vegetable farms. That sounds like a great use. you have any other examples? Um, so one of the organic growers I work with, he's only about an hour from me. He advocates um, a quart per acre every week in whatever he's doing. He just, he wants some regalia out there. Um, he, he is strongly of the belief that that makes him a much more successful grower. I keep trying to get the company to adopt a little every week as our motto. Um, so far, marketing has not bought into that particular thing. Um, but regalia does a, because it's, it's specifically really powerful for powdery mildew, but it, because it's turning on these bio, biological pathways inside the plant, it'll help with botrytis um, in the right mixes. It's, it's not a great oomycete material, but in the right tank mixes or the right programs, it can help with downy mildew or late blight. Um, so there, there are a lot of places that you can use it, but it does make for better plants. Um, and Dan, I think you've probably seen some of this as well. One of the things we know about Actigard is, um, is that it, sometimes you see a yield lag with it. It'll actually, I've seen eight to 14% in a number of papers with regalia. Um, and I guess it's because it boosts the chlorophyll B in the plant, but we often will see an actual yield increase along that same range. So it's not unusual. I, I hate doing it in small plot work, like with peppers, because they're so variable but you will often see an actual um, upshot in the yield, assuming that you've got the nutrition right and everything else is going well. Okay, great. And you know, that was one of the questions that we got in the Q&A box actually was, is there a yield penalty? And I wanna move over to Dan on this because he's 
seen this. I, I, you've told me you've seen this in Actigard, and, and perhaps it's one of the penalties of crying wolf. If you, if we want to continue with that analogy, is there is some resource allocation within the plant, correct? To you, to changing itself on the inside to be in a defensive posture, and perhaps we see that that's an explanation for a yield decrease. Yeah. Um, so, so if if, if everything's uh, it, so let's say the the plant. First of all, one of my one of my advices for people using Actigard, in fact, it's on the label, um, is is do not use Actigard if the plant is under stress, a, a, a drought stress, or some other kind of stress already, um, because what you're doing is you're telling the plant, if if you think about it that way, you're telling the plant it's under attack. Um, so where I've seen a penalty for for using Actigard is is when you have the plant under stress and and where the disease doesn't actually strike. So for example, if you're putting Actigard on for something and the disease doesn't show up or isn't particularly uh, severe, then you have, uh, it, it's making all these biochemicals. It started down that pathway. You're not getting the, the disease. And, and so yes, there can be a, a, a yield reduction. And we've seen that with, with cucurbits, for example. And I know that, that uh, for example, like Frank Lowe in, uh, in, uh, in North Carolina, it's, it's seen that on, on tomatoes and transplants in greenhouses. So you have to be very careful with, uh, with active guard. I had a few other things. Okay. Um, uh, in general, uh, I was, uh, I, the application of active guard probably in the first half of the season is better than the last half. And, and Steve talked about the, um, um, the, 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 the PHI, the harvest interval, but um, where I've seen it used a lot Actigard is for managing bacterial spot on 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 um, uh, tomatoes, uh, processing tomatoes, where you're harvesting them at the end of the season. So uh, they they are very interested in that. But then they're also interested in in looking at some of these other plant activator uh, products. Yeah. All right. Well, um, can you tell me, guys? Sorry, my screen got screwed up. Can you guys tell me a little bit more about um, some of the other types of of these products within this, what we call frac group P, these plant activators. I don't, we're, we just have been kind of getting into the trenches with Regalia and Actigard. And there are several others that have different ways of working. Uh, I, from what I understand from you, because there's a diversity of ways that these work. The, the three that I'm thinking of that I've, or the one that I'm thinking of really that I see more often than the rest are things called phosphites. They go by a lot of different active ingredient names, and there's I, I understand there's sort of a variation on a theme, uh, something like aluminum tris uh, or phosphite or acids of or salts of fatty acids of phosphorus, things like that. Some trade names are like phosterol or agrophos. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that type of product and how it might differ from Regalia and Actigard? And Dan, I'm going to let you cover the phosphonic acid materials. Um, and Ben, I'm assuming you were also going to get into kelp materials or kelp-based materials. I would love to, but let's start with the because that's where with... I started. That was to oh. me that was that was the when I first started working indoors. Um, the Stimplex salesman had been by the research farm and left a jug behind, which I tried and was really impressed with the overall increase of plant health. And you will often see that with these kelp-based materials. 
Um, they, they provide, when applied to the soil, you get some micronutrients. They stimulate microorganisms in the soil to a positive effect. Um, they provide kinetin, which will stimulate cytokinin later on. Um, and they do turn on the jasmonic acid tract. So you get some of this biochemical reaction. So I'm a I'm a huge fan of kelp-based materials, or even in high tunnels, um, all the research I, I found, I just started putting kelp down. I was putting dry kelp down to get my soil ready for the season. There, there's a lot of advantages in that. And when you look around the products on the market, many of them, um, you'll find kelp extract or, or raw kelp added to them. And then you'll see various vitamin tonics, micronutrients and things like that. Um, every company's kind of got their own uh, their own version of this, but they're all variations on a theme where they seem to be building out from kelp. Um, and, and so that's, a, that's very different from the phosphonic acid materials. I mean, that's a whole different class. But then there's all of these other bioactivators out there. Um, Marone recently bought a company out of Finland and they have lignin. We, we use lignin-based materials and the extract of pine. Um, hmm. And so they also can provide a lot of this bioactivation. So this is, this, is, this is widening out really rapidly in terms of the number of materials. And the uh, advice I give to growers is try some on a few plants. If you're unfamiliar with them, try some, see how they work in with the rest of your system. Um, because they, well, one of the things I found with Stimplex, because it stimulates cytokinin, I was able to take by massive over application of it to a handful of red deuce tomatoes. So red deuce do a nice job of making eight to 12 ounce tomatoes. They're here in Pennsylvania, it is the standard tomato by over applying Stimplex. I didn't lose anything in the yield weight, but I took eight to 12 ounce tomatoes as your typical, and I made a whole lot of two to three ounce tomatoes on the plant. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, put, it produced gobs of flowers and tiny, tiny fruit. Interesting. Yeah, it almost sounds like it had sort of like a, a funky gibberellic acid sort of effect in oh, it's affecting a, it was the, a growth the flower structures. Yeah. Going back to you had mentioned PGRs earlier. I mean, you can, you, they're, the typical over application, the, when, when growers tell me they're measuring it by the glug, every extension person just, <laughs> you, we all cringe at that very thing because when you're, when you're measuring, well, any, any greenhouse grower who's used to dealing with parts per million on PGRs, they understand this better. Vegetable growers, they, they haven't always measured as carefully as they could. And you do have to be careful with any of them that have a PGR effect to them as well. They, they can do things that you would not, you would not expect. Great. Thanks for throwing that out as um, some words of caution there. Um, Dan, would you like to talk a little bit about the, the phosphonates and the phosphites and that whole group? To, sure. Just generally? I, uh, you know, it's interesting, Ben, I was asked to, to give a talk in November on, and, and one of the things they asked me to talk about was this group of chemicals. So um, I, it, within a couple of days, I became an expert at it, right? So, <laughs> uh, so, but, so, so you're right. They're, they're known as phosphite or phosphoric acid products. I, I, I listed a couple uh, 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 trade names here, although there's, as you mentioned, many agrifos, confine, rampart, phosphorol, profite. Then there's Aliette and, and uh, uh, another one I can't remember right now. But when I was in grad school uh, some 30 years ago, they were arguing about how those products worked back then. And from some of the more recent uh, reading I've done, I think they're still arguing. 
Uh, but but, but the, the consensus seems to be there's two main modes of action. One is the suppression of energy production by an, uh, an enzyme system in water mold. So that would include phytophthora and downy mildew. And the other is, as you mentioned, an induction of, of plant defense mechanisms. And, and that's, that's why you're talking about it here. Uh, my usual recommendation then is, is for uh, the most common recommendation I have for a phosphite product is for phytophthora blad and cucurbits right at, at, at softball stage in watermelon. So at, at the surface, that might seem, well, I'm target, car targeting uh, water molds, phytophthora, so, so maybe I'm going after the, the first mode of action, the, the energy sy uh, production system. But I'm not discounting that there, there might be a little bit of induction of, of plant defense mechanisms in there as well. But there are some phytotoxicity warnings. Uh, do not apply when plants are, are, are moisture or heat stressed. Like, and that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, that there might be kind of an energy drain type thing there. There might be some weird combinations with copper. Uh, last year, I had some watermelon growers. Not that it was nothing serious, but they, they brought in some leaves. And, and so that's a concern. Um, so re read the phytotoxicity labels uh, uh, pretty carefully on that. And then finally, as it, when I went back and reviewed these labels, for this talk, I noticed that these products, even if, if, even if the amount of active ingredient is pretty similar to, to each other, the labels varied wildly. I mean, just wildly. Um, and to the, to the extent, it, it's hard for me to believe some of them are even reviewed by EPA. But anyway, hmm. so when, you, when you're using one of these products, um, read the label carefully. If you have questions, I, I'll be glad to, to field those if, if you want. But uh, some some of the stuff on the labels was very right on, and some of it's kind of more kind of more, more out there. So um, that's my take on phosphite products. Okay, so and I'd like to I, and and Ben, if I can, because I yeah. Um, so Katie Gold is the um, uh, relatively new uh, great pathologist with Cornell, and she just uh, just published an article one of the last couple days. And um, the phosphonic acid materials, that's, that's what I know them as. I know there's a lot of different names for them. Um, in, in grapes, they are well known as being very powerful for downy mildew. And they're actually very careful how they use them because they're really important. But then I've heard other pathologists working in vine crops like, like Dan often does. And they're not, they're not, they don't consider them to be powerful downy mildew materials there. As a matter of fact, they consider them really secondary. So these, these same materials work very differently on different water molds. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's you, you need to understand which crop you're working with. It's not that they work on all downy mildews, which have a huge, huge amount of variability. Anyhow, um, they, they are very specific in when they work, what crop they work and when they work. Great, thanks. Uh, well, I'm glad you guys drew out how the phosphonate types actually work in two ways. That was something I didn't realize. Um, I had known them as I've seen them as recommendations for stuff like late blight and some of the root rots and uh, fruit rots and downy mildew. But um, I didn't realize that was sort of like a separate function to its defense uh, building stuff. I thought maybe it built a defense in such a way that it worked better for those types of diseases. But it sounds like it's like a completely separate thing. It acts like a more of a traditional fungicide in that sense against the the downy mildews and the phytophthoras and stuff. Is that what I'm getting from, from that? I, I would say yes, but from what I've read, there's, there's not complete agreement either. So no, of course. Okay. Well, um, you had mentioned phytotoxicity, Dan, I think that is a, 
a great thing to realize when it comes to mixing. And we actually, one of the questions we got in the chat here or in the Q&A box was about, it's a two-parter. The second part was, do they function best independently or as a combination with a more traditional fungicide? Um, we, maybe we can ask the first part of that question later. But I think the question is getting at, are they safe to use in combination? Are they better to use in, com- in, in combination? How would you guys respond to that? So I'll, I'll start, Dan, you can come in here. Um, so the phone call I had uh, this morning was from a cannabis grower in Maine, and he's dealing with powdery mildew in his indoor marijuana crop. And so he's using regalia. Um, one of the things that you can tank mix regalia with a peroxyacetic acid or paracetic acid. We, we've done that tank mix. We sell jet ag, but um, I'm sure most of the listeners here probably know oxidate better. I'm going to use jet ag instead of oxidate because it's better because we sell jet ag. Um, <laughs> and so you can, but you can tank mix them together. And what is interesting is because as we've been discussing, um, regalia and a lot of these other products, they turn on the internal biochemistry. Uh, Dan had mentioned this. They do not act directly against uh, a fungal or a bacterial uh, organism, they let the plant do the work. They tell, they, they give the plant instructions on what to do. The plant starts creating new chemistries and they do all of that. Not These are natural chemistries the plant would create. Just too much damage happens before the plant gets there. Um, but what the, the nice part when you tank mix uh, one of the peroxide type materials is now you're oxidizing the mycelium spores that are on the outside of the plant. So you're getting some sanitation. I hate to, when folks say you're sterilizing because you're not, but you get a lot of sanitation. So you're reducing inoculum. At the same time, you're turning on all these other pathways. So you get this one-two punch where the plant is now better able to stand on its own and you're reducing the inoculum. So these tank mixes, and I mentioned the combination of mancozeb, regalia, and copper, now you've got multiple modes of action. And for some of our toughest organisms out there, and I'll count powdery mildew and botrytis among them, huge spore spore producers, we see lots of resistance to existing chemistries. When you add all these up, it's you get a lot better control simply because you're layering modes of action and you've got the internal chemistry working along with what you're doing externally. That's Let me, yeah, go ahead, Dan. So, so uh, the, the, it's an interesting question because uh, I think it's almost impossible to answer because I think uh, uh, I, I don't disagree with anything that, that Steve said, but I think with some products, you, you, you best check with a company or read the label carefully or, you know, actually talk to them or, or, or somebody like myself or Steve. But uh, for, well, the, the example I was thinking was uh, Lifeguard, which is a, a product made by Certus. And the Certus people tell me don't mix it with Oxidate because in that case, you're talking about a microorganism and Oxidate will kill it. They, with their, right. their, their experience. Life, Lifeguard is a bacillus product, correct? Right. right. But, but, some, but it is complicated because some products that you'll see, which are bacilli, uh, active ingredients, they're not really dealing with the bacilli. Like, for example, and, and, and I don't think that uh, Serenade Max has uh, an induced uh, chemical reaction, but, but with that one, it's a bacillus, but, but it's, it's not the live product you're dealing with. It's, 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 it's something in the cell wall, you know. And so, but, but with Lifeguard, the Certus people tell me don't mix it with Oxidate because it'll kill it before you put it on. So that, that's important. And there's certainly other products like that. 
On the other hand, the sort of people you say you can mix it with copper. So uh, I hate to be difficult, but I think probably can you mix it? I think it's good to mix it with, with traditional fungicides or other alternative fungicides, but you're best to check on that. Or, or like Steve says, use it on, on a few plants first. Well, and I always look, anytime you're doing a new tank mix, um, you, you always do the jar test. I am a fan of the jar test. It's that's where you start at. It protects me all the time. Um, it's a great liability limiter for those who are giving out advice but start off, make sure that what you're putting in the container is actually compatible with each other. And for anybody here who wants to do an experiment for a negative jar test, um, take, uh, take one of the parasitic acid materials and mix it with a copper solution. Um, doesn't take very long before you'll see that oxidative reaction and it'll tell you not to do it. Um, those are, that's a really, and you never mix any metals with the peroxide material. So um, calcium, magnesium, manganese, potassium, they're all metals. And so you never mix them with a peroxide material. So there, there are some rules that work in there for those tank mixes, um, but you know, you, you, you don't know. And, and um, a, back, I mean, a tank mix that worked really well under, we'll call them so-called normal conditions where you're getting some rain and some sun, you get four or five days of cool, cloudy conditions back to back, and then the sun comes out, and you feel this is you finally have spray weather, and you run out and spray. Those plants are a lot more sensitive to uh, what you may be spraying, and while they may have tolerated your your tank mix before, all of a sudden you're seeing some phytotoxic reaction to it. So it's not a as as I think you are alluding to, Dan. This is not a one size fits all. And you, you really need to build up a body of experience as you're doing this. Like Regalia and, um, and PAA, it's one of the things that we've just discovered um, is a good mix to use. We, we've, we have enough experience now that I feel comfortable recommending it, um, but we have a bacillus material. Um, it's a bacillus nakamori. We think it's good with PAA, but we're not ready to make that recommendation at this point. I, I also wonder if um, something you had said earlier, Dan, about it, with using ActiGuard in cucurbits, there can be um, a, a price to pay that the plant goes through, if, especially if the disease doesn't show up. So the plant's all like ready to fight, but then there's no real pressure. I want, would, combining, would combining a contact fungicide, a traditional fungicide with that, further enhance that effect of you know, not allowing the pathogen to actually occur so that the ActiGuard doesn't, I mean, ha increases this effect of the plant, like ready to fight, but then not getting to fight. Yeah, I, I, I suppose so. That, that So this is, uh, I, in extension, as, you, as both of you know, uh, we, we get to do things that, that aren't actually on the label, right? I mean, that's, that's what we do. Part of it is, is try things so that we can see, you know, if, if this product can be used in a certain way, and if it can, then maybe we can get it labeled. So what I was looking at was using uh, ActiGuard and several other products to manage uh, bacterial wilt in, uh, in cantaloupe. And it's not on the label, so I'm not telling anybody yeah. to do that. But, 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 but my point here is that you wouldn't be able to uh, mix that. I understand what you're saying, though. Uh, uh, so, but, but you, you, you couldn't, uh, mix that with another product, but what we found was is, is in the years where we, uh, had great 
pressure from bacterial wilt because of the cucumber beetles spreading it, we, uh, uh, we did not see a yield drag or yield reduction. But in those years where we had mild pressure, we saw a yield drag or actually what happened kind of similar to what Steve was talking about. We saw smaller fruit, cantaloupe. cantaloupe. So that was enough to convince us that you shouldn't be using uh, Actigard in that way. And some of the other products, it was kind of a, a mixed bag, but. Hmm. Uh, so um, we had one other question in the, in the Q and A, and that was about how consistently effective are plant activators and how would you guys answer that question? I feel like we've touched on it in many different ways throughout today, but is, what, could you put it succinctly how, how you think they work in general? Well, so uh, one thing I mentioned to you earlier, uh, Ben, is when, so when I first started, we, we, I was, a lot of big chemical companies contacted me and wanted to do studies, which, which was great. You know, the big three or four companies, and I did those. those. Now, it's, it's – and when I did those studies, if, if somebody in Georgia or, or Arizona was doing a similar study, we'd probably get very similar results because it's fairly – it, it's not that hard to, if you're using a, a, a standard conventional fungicide to show that that replicates across areas. But now uh, the, that money's almost entirely dried up. And now I get uh, smaller companies coming to me like Marone, for example, or, or some, a company like that. And they, they, they were interested in, in trialing their products. And I love doing that. But, but what I found is some years it seems to work and some years it doesn't. And it seems to vary more across researchers. That's not a knock against the product. It, it, it's not a knock against the researchers, but I think there's probably some subtle differences in how those, uh, how these products work because we don't understand them entirely. Um, so how consistently effective they're, they're effective. And if you, but, but uh, if, if they're not effective, you might just kind of have to manipulate how you're doing it or check how you're doing it, check the label more carefully, talk with somebody like Steve who has more experience in it, for example, um, uh, because we're, we're still, uh, trying to understand exactly how these work. And, and Dan, um, I, I, I have to agree with you a hundred percent. So, um, I wear two hats for Marone. I am the Northeast and mid upper mid Atlantic sales guy, but I'm also product development. So I manage our field research trials for the 13 States that I cover, which is Ohio to the Atlantic ocean and Virginia to Maine. And um, one of the things that drives the, our product development team often start raving mad is where we'll get two years of consistent results, same researcher, same crop. And then the third year comes in and, you know, we're, we're all excited to see the data come in and it comes in and it's not as good as it was the first two years. Not negative, but it's not what it was the first two years. And then in some products, um, we will see that um, you see this uh, one quart does well, two quarts does better, and three quarts, you're back to well again. You're back to the one quart. And so these um, understanding the, the, the new biopesticides, which is where we just group them all under, understanding them, um, there's, there's a lot more to be done here. We, do, we are constantly looking to understand better. I, I wrote down, so a couple of years ago, we hired a private lab to better characterize regalia for us. We wanted to understand what it was doing. And so we know a bunch of things and, and some of this applies to all bios. So almost all the bios prefer to be at a pH of six to eight. That's that range seems to work better. It doesn't, uh, if for most growers who are used to applying uh, most conventional or synthetic fungicides and insecticides, 
typically we want them in the acid zone, especially pyrethroids where we want them more acidic and a lot of materials uh, like captan break down really quickly under alkaline hydrolysis. So again, you're acidifying the solution. Um, copper, however, prefers a pH of above six and that's six to eight range, which is where a lot of the bios are. So we know that works. The first time you apply regalia, it takes 48 hours for this whole SAR, ISR uh, reaction to come up to full, but it'll last out to 10 days, but then it starts to peter out. And at 17 days, you're down to about 35%. What I'm, my, my point with that is not the numbers, but that we are still under learning how to understand these molecules better. We're still understanding how to characterize them and put them in. And so the, the understanding that we could put PAA, JEDAG, and Regalia together, that was absolutely wonderful because in general, we were recommending you always apply the uh, JEDAG by itself. Uh, we did not want to see that being applied. So, you know, tank mixing saves growers an awful lot of time. So we are, we are deeply into an understanding mode for a, uh, a growing bunch of, of, of products. There's a lot more to learn yet. And every year when I do my dealer updates, I look at this and it's how much more can there possibly be? And <laughs> it's, it's a mountain. We are still climbing that mountain. We are, we are nowhere near the top of the roller coaster yet. Okay. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. There should be, there's more coming down the pike and we understand more every day. Um, so I thank you guys for joining, joining me today. Um, this, this show has been put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a group of extension educators and researchers from across the Great Lakes, Great Lakes region sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. We broadcast live on Zoom from 1230 Eastern Time uh, or 1130 Central Time every Wednesday. And this year we're going from the first week of March through the first week of September. We interview farmers, researchers, and others about topics relative to vegetable growers. Next week, be sure to join us again. Ben Whirling is going to be interviewing Cheryl Truman from the University of Guelph over in Ontario in an episode called From Cradle to Crate, Bacterial Diseases of Tomato. Hot topic. So, Steve, Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Okay. Yep. See you later. Bye. Hey, you guys. A product that works like you've never seen before. Hey, you guys. A way to change inside and even up the score. Go, 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 plant activity.